Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Slow down, Joe. After attempting to turn the page of a not-so-great week, the Democratic 2020 frontrunner Joe Biden just moments ago speed-read through a laundry list of policy proposals. Did it work? Let's find out. Joining me now from the convention is Arlette Sines. Arlette, how did Biden's pitch, it was the, the final one uh, of the day, how did his pitch play out in the room? Well, Essie, Joe Biden came here to the convention and you saw a lot of Biden supporters here holding up signs and cheering during various points of his speech. Biden trying to make his pitch in South Carolina, which is a state that's important for all 2020 Democratic candidates, but particularly for Joe Biden, who will be placing a lot of emphasis in this state where he's been a known political figure for quite some time. And in his pitch, he reminded voters at the times that he served with Barack Obama in the White House and take a listen as he he once again tried to make this a, a campaign, a fight between himself and President Trump. You all know in your bones that this election is more important than anyone you've ever been engaged in. We have a president who has promoted hate and division, encourages white supremacy, embraces dictators, in fact, goes around the world weakening our alliances. And look, our children are watching. They're watching. And it matters what presidents say and do. Barack Obama, they watched, and they emulated. They wanted to be like him. Four more years of Donald Trump will permanently change the character of this country. We can't let that happen. We have to beat Donald Trump as the overwhelming imperative we have. Now, as you mentioned, Biden raced through a list of policy <laughs> proposals, and he unveiled a little bit of new policy when it comes to criminal justice reform, saying that he wants to eliminate mandatory minimums, also that there should be no private prisons. We'll see what else he uh, unveils when he uh, releases an official plan on that. But Biden was one of 22 candidates who was here making their pitch to South Carolina voters, particularly black voters, which make up the majority of the Democratic primary electorate, and heading uh, after this. They're going to be heading down to that debate in Miami, where we're going to see so many of them face off directly uh, later this week. Essie. Arlette Signs from the South Carolina Democratic Convention tonight. Thanks. I know you're there. It's a long day. We appreciate all your reporting. Uh, it was a day of stump speeches, lashing out at President Trump, some intra-party barbs, some subtweeting. But 22 of the 23 Democratic candidates got their moment in the South Carolina sun today. So who made the most of it? For more analysis, let me bring in former senior advisor to President Obama, David Axelrod, former RNC communications director, Doug High, and assistant editor at The Washington Post, David Swerdlick. Um, Ax, I want to start with you, and let's stay with Biden um, first. The Biden campaign really leaned into the, the segregationist um, controversy, not, not only by not apologizing, but then demanding Booker apologize to Biden. Now Biden says no one needs to apologize. What do you make of his handling of this whole thing this week? Yeah, I mean, his handling of it, to me, is even more significant than the the issue itself. You know, campaigns are replete with examples of things that happen that look decisive at the moment and, and don't become decisive. But what you see is a pattern that should be concerning, whether it was the Hyde Amendment or this week, using language that he shouldn't have used uh, and then stumbling uh, around it for a while. And then in each instance, staff explaining they tried to tell him not to use the language, they tried to tell him not to say it. All of these are are warning signs uh, for the Biden candidacy. And the two things that I think are most 
uh, troubling uh, is that he has to overcome uh, an impression, A, that his time has passed, uh, yeah. that he's kind of living in the past, and B, that he's uh, perhaps too old. And so these stumbles matter more mm. for a candidate like Biden than it would for another candidate. Uh, David Swerlick, Biden's leading in polls among African-American voters, but his support is softer than Hillary Clinton's was. And he just resuscitated old memories of his opposition to busing and his friendships with Dixiecrats. How important was today for him in this audience? I think it was important today, A, to put this controversy behind him and B, to shore up the fact that he's already got a lead both in generally in, in national polling and with black voters, as yeah. you say, yeah. and he doesn't want that to shrink and lose ground to Senator Harris, Senator Warren, Senator Booker and others as we head into the debates, yeah. including the CNN debate later this month. Um, and I don't know if he was so successful at that. That speech he gave just now was just sort of a pro forma speech, mm. looked like he just wanted to get on and get off the stage rather than turn around to the audience and say, look, you know, yeah. forget what you've heard. This is Joe Biden 2.0. It seems like his campaign wants to coast a little on the idea yeah. that he's affiliated with President Obama, that people are comfortable with Uncle Joe, and that may get him far, but it's going to be harder once people can attack him directly in debates. Well, Doug, it seems to me like Biden's been cryogenically frozen for the past decade or, or two, and now he's, he's, someone woke him up, and he's running one of his old campaigns when, you know, he could defend the crime bill or he could wax nostalgic about, you know, working with racists. He could support the Hyde Amendment. He could joke about getting too touchy feely with women. We're not in that place anymore, though. Right. That campaign is from another era. Why do you think no one's told him this? Well, I think what we've seen is staff is trying to say, look, and this is what David referred to, David Axelrod referred mm -hmm. to, I am trying, you know, staff members, I am trying to do this. I am trying to fix this mm -hmm. campaign. And we're kind of in the first 20 minutes of Austin Powers right now. Yeah, exactly. He's come out of the cryogenic <laughs> freezer. It's not exactly right. the generation. But here's, I think, a way that Joe Biden can make those same points and move forward, not remind everybody that he's been in the Senate for almost 50 years mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, he can talk about working with my old boss, Eric Cantor, on the Violence Against mm -hmm. Women Act. That's mm -hmm. a bipartisan mm -hmm. um, issue uh, where Republicans have struggled. He tried to bring Cantor and Republicans in. We had mm -hmm. pretty good negotiations on that. He can talk about working with John McCain. Mm -hmm. Also not ancient yes, history. That is a that safe space. <laughs> but it also gets yeah. under Donald Trump's skin and can set up uh, Biden to yeah, be back point. in the Trump versus Joe fight that always benefits him. Um, Ax, I also think it's been a mistake. I want to get your take on this. For Biden to not give more interviews. He's, he's in essence starving the press, which means we only have these controversies to focus on. Should he give us more access? Wouldn't that only help him? Well, I think he's going to have to. You know, they, they've played it very, very close to the vest in the beginning of this campaign. Very little exposure, hardly any interviews, a very little interaction with other candidates. Uh, I don't think you're going to get away with that uh, from this point on. We're entering a new phase, starting with the debates. Uh, and I think he's going to have to show that, listen, for Joe Biden, in my view, for him to be the nominee of this party, he has to show that he's up to it, that yeah. he's vigorous enough, that he's and, and, and that involves exposing yourself in ways he hasn't exposed himself yet. He has to pass this test. He is probably, as we sit here today, the candidate who is most likely to defeat Donald Trump if we were voting today. But he has an eight-month exam, or more than eight months yeah. ahead of him, in which he has to prove that he is vigorous enough and that he is not locked in the past, but he's looking to the future. Yeah. Um, David Sword, look, I, I thought, turning to Cory Booker now, yeah. 
I thought he was real smart in his, in his speech. Mm-hmm. It was very it was very biblical. Um, in a state like South Carolina, where there are a lot of Christian African American voters, right. that seemed intentional. Just take a listen. Where King was slain, there is words there that that are Joseph's words, Joseph's brother's words that they uttered before they grabbed him and threw him into a ditch. These are the words that are written where King is slain, a challenge to us. The words from Genesis, it says, Behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him and see what becomes of the dream. Well, this is a Um, He went on to talk about going back to the mountain. Um, Your thoughts on that approach here? Yeah, there was a little bit of Obama there. Obama, Uh when he needed it, when he was campaigning in the South, when he was talking to particular audiences, African-Americans, Southerners, he wanted to bring in the Bible. He wanted to bring in that old-time religion. And I think what Cory Booker is trying to do there more than anything else is say that he's animated and he's ready, in contrast to what Doug and Axe were saying about Biden. Cory Booker, Senator Booker, is an establishment low boil, glass half full, you know, let's all get along type of guy. And that speech there, I think he was signaling, Mm. look, I've got a little attention this week, and I'm going to try and roll this into the debates with a little bit of momentum. If I can make just one quick point about what Doug was saying a moment ago, Essie, I think the thing that, that the Biden camp hasn't figured out yet, or at least their candidate hasn't figured out yet, is that no one expects him to be far left. Everybody knows he's moderate. No one expects him to be at the cutting edge of a racial discourse. What they do expect is that he'll be nimble and on his feet. And I think, as you were saying and as mm. Axe was saying, he did not demonstrate that this well, week. Well, we have a cl- uh, another clip from, from Biden where he was talking about criminal justice reform. It was a it was a frame, refrain we heard a lot today from a lot of the candidates. Mm-hmm. Take a listen to what he said. Criminal justice reform. There are too many people in prison, too many black men, and I might add black women in prison. And look, in our administration, we started to address the problem. Our reforms helped reduce federal prisons by 38,000 people came out. And Linda, we passed the support of school discipline initiative to break the school to prison pipeline but we need to pass bobby scott's congressman bobby scott from virginia's safe justice act but i met with him we got to add a few things that i've been proposing no more mandatory minimums period and private prisons which we did in our bill period there was a lot there doug (laughs) um i'm just i'm wondering though this was okay this was a speech he will get questions Mm -hmm. about criminal justice reform. His role in where criminal justice reform is today will be asked at a debate. Do you think he's ready? I think he's trying to demonstrate that he's ready. If you mm-hmm. if you look, he, he had a laundry list on a whole lot of topics. Yeah. Criminal justice reform being one of them. So he has several different things he can now pivot to when he's asked about um, various things that he supported in the crime bill. One thing that he did talk about in his speech was also um, the assault weapons ban. Yeah. You know, he's the only one who can say that he supported it when it was right. passed. That's not insignificant. Uh, also, might not be a very smart idea, but we'll see how <laughs> that plays out. Um, Axe, back to you. With Iran tensions looming large. Do you think Biden should make a big foreign policy pivot, given, you know, given all of his experience there? Well, I don't know if he, uh, he I think that's a big thing for him going into this debate. He's going to be the only one. He has a superior uh, portfolio uh, of experience on foreign policy. Yeah. And one of the things that he will be selling is, I know this ter- terrain. I know mm. this turf. I know the world. And we need firm footing, especially after what we saw with the president uh, last week, the 10-minute drill uh, with the president. So yeah. uh, I think that that is an advantage for him, and he will raise it. But I, I must say, Bernie Sanders is going to be standing 
standing next to him and he's going to say, you have all this foreign policy experience and it led you to vote for the war in Iraq. Right. And that and was you, a yeah. terrible mistake. So he yeah. has to be a little bit he has to be a little bit sensitive to the comeback. David Axelrod, always so grateful for your time and expertise. Thank you for joining me, Thank sir. Thank you. All right, Doug and David, stay right there. When we come back, we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders. He's in a fight for second place. I want to say a few words about an interesting event that was held in Charleston earlier this week, sponsored by a national organization called Third Way, that represents the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, a group that receives a substantial amount of their support from Wall Street. At this third way meeting, I was called, quote, an existential threat to the Democratic Party. Now, why am I an existential threat? Well, maybe it's because my administration will finally take on the insurance companies and the drug companies and pass a Medicare for all single payer program. Well, that was Bernie Sanders earlier today lobbying a grenade during his speech at the South Carolina Democratic Convention. Let's talk more about Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and some others. My panel returns and joining us is co-founder of Third Way, Matthew Bennett. Matthew, um, Sanders lit into you guys today in, in South Carolina. We just played the sound. I want to get your response. Yeah, it's not the first time uh, he came after us in a tweet earlier this week, and then he went yeah. on Chris Cuomo's show also and did the same thing. Here's the thing uh, that Senator Sanders gets wrong. Leave aside his slurs about us. He thinks that we think he's an existential threat to the party because of what he would do as president, but that's not it. We are worried about him because he is an avowed democratic socialist, and our feeling, our fear, is yeah. that an avowed socialist just cannot beat Donald Trump. That is an existential right. threat to the republic. Yeah, I know. He's trying to turn it around to, be, to, to make him sound sort of intimidating, but I think we know what you, what you meant. But if I'm, if I'm a Democrat, I might be thinking, hey, we listened to the center-left establishment last time. They told us to vote for a deeply flawed establishment candidate because she was, quote, most electable, instead of Bernie, where you know a lot of the energy was. Why should voters trust what the center left is saying this time? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we just had a big national election in 2018, and the center left absolutely crushed Republicans in House races, in governor's races, even in a yeah. couple of Senate races. Second thing is, um, Hillary was a flawed candidate. She did make some serious mistakes, and she lost by 77,000 votes between three states. We just won those states in governor's races by 1.3 million votes with center-left gubernatorial candidates. We have a blueprint for victory. That's the one we ought to follow. Mm. Uh, David, Bernie's been quietly sinking in the polls while Elizabeth Warren's been rising. When asked about that earlier this week, he decided it was her gender, not her ideas, were the problem. He said, I think we're running against a lot of problems. I think there are a certain number of people who would like to see a woman elected. Uh, turns out Bernie really is a bro, maybe the original Bernie bro. Um, that really landed with a thud. Did that hurt him? That landed with a thud, and I think his sort of spat now with third way is landing with a thud. He threw them a brushback pitch a couple of days ago. I get that. It makes no sense to me now that he continues at the state convention yeah. to, to go after a think tank when <laughs> what he can do is, A, 
push his sort of uh, Nordic-style democratic socialism, yeah. make the best case he can for that, try and be upbeat, and not do upbeat. basically... Do, do, <laughs> right. Have you met All right, All right fair, fair. In, in a way, he did the same thing that Senator... Uh, that Vice President Biden did. Mm. Vice President Biden used awkward language to make a point about race yeah. and, and quote-unquote civility that, that landed like a dud. Now, uh, Senator Biden did the same thing with Senator Warren and gender. Look, these guys are going to have to go on their own merits. There aren't the unicorns of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, two people who are both loved and hated right now in this field. These are Democrats trying to make their best case. Well, Doug, I think I think Matt's right. I don't think socialism is a winning general election message. I'm surprised it's working actually in the primary. But there doesn't seem to be a Democrat who in this field who is willing to run as a real moderate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why why not? Uh, I, I think they, they see where the party is and how the party shifted. This is why Biden shifted on the Hyde Amendment. That, that was ser- safe, rare, and legal for abortion used to be a very safe space for mm-hmm. Democrats in a general election. It is a very unsafe place in a, in a primary for the Democrats. I'd also say um, to Bernie's attack on Third Way, every time Nancy Pelosi calls Mitch McConnell the Grim Reaper, Team McConnell goes cha-ching. So for Bernie to go out there and name them by name and attack them by name, I think it was a really good thing for Third Way. It ups their profile. <laughs> well, probably will raise some money off of that. Can I disagree with you guys a little, though, real quick yeah. about the moderates, Essie? I, I really think, yes, you have Sanders, a declared socialist. Elizabeth Warren, yeah. Pete Buttigieg are progressives. I really, I think of uh, Senator Harris, Vice President Biden, and Congressman O'Rourke as moderates. Yes, In what way? Name a policy. They, they've tacked left on a number of issues because, as you say, the party is moving that way. These people are, are in the mainstream of the party and on a lot Name of issues. Name a policy that, that can appeal to blue-collar voters in Ohio. To, that Kamala Harris supports. Well, you, you, I mean, that Kamala Harris supports? Yes. I mean, look, she's In what a way for- is she a moderate? She's a former prosecutor. So? Are, the, the, okay. <laughs> she's a former prosecutor. She, I, in that first town hall she did with Jake Tapper, she got a little ahead of her skis saying, Medicare for all, let's just pay for everything. Mm-hmm. But since then, she has tried to dial that back. Medicare know, for all is popular. I'm not making the policy case for I hear you. I, I think hear you, there's but a I lot of buy, people who say this. that sounds I think, crazy. And Matt, I'd love, I'd love your opinion on this. I feel like, and I said this um, you know, last week, I feel like moderate has just become a catchphrase to describe someone who can talk to blue-collar voters without offending them. And it really has nothing to do with policy. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with, uh, with ideas. It's really more of like a tone thing. Well, I think that may be right. We live in a world in which Donald Trump has upended politics so thoroughly that there really isn't a continuum between right and left like there used to be. And divisions in the Democratic Party that exist in the 90s don't really exist anymore around things like social issues. But there is a big division, and it's one of the reasons that Sanders is going after us. It's a division between someone who's running as a democratic socialist and democratic socialist ideas like Medicare for all and people who aren't. And I I think Mm. that the mainstream candidates who are running as democratic capitalists, people who believe capitalism is important, but is fundamentally broken and needs to be repaired. Those are the people that have a chance of beating Trump. Well, and actually, I have one of those uh, on the show um, coming up. So we'll we'll talk to him about that. Um, Doug. Mm -hmm. Matt's making a point that um, Elizabeth Warren has a better chance of beating Trump than than Bernie Sanders. I think Republicans would much rather face Elizabeth Warren than Bernie Sanders. What do you think? 
Um, I, I think they'd be happy with either choice. If, okay. they, could pick, if they could pick <laughs> right. their, out of their two or three top choices, it would be them. Um, it's, it say, seems to be more personal with Warren. Warren, when she hmm. made her comment of you didn't create that business, you didn't, you didn't build that, yeah. um, that spoke directly to Republicans and, and why they run, why, mm -hmm. why they work in Republican politics, and that's everything they stand against. Mm -hmm. It's personal with Elizabeth Warren, and then you have the Native American issue. Which oh, I remember. Talk yeah. for hours. I remember. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. That was a great, great conversation. Matthew Bennett, Doug High, David Swirlick. Uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah. All right. Another week, another candidate of the week joins me. Stay tuned to find out next. Bernie Sanders may have popularized democratic socialism, but he's not the only candidate talking about it. One, in fact, is putting it squarely in the crosshairs, telling other Democrats that socialism will not beat Donald Trump. Socialism is not the answer. I was reelected. I was reelected in a purple state in 2014, one of the worst years for Democrats in a quarter century. Today, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper made a similar sort of argument in South Carolina. Listen. We need a dreamer and a doer. We need a progressive and a pragmatist. Now, being a pragmatist doesn't mean saying no to big ideas. Being a pragmatist means figuring out, figuring out how to get them done. Governor Hickenlooper is my candidate of the week. He joins me now. Welcome to the program. Uh, glad to be on. Thanks for having me. So you've begun to carve out a very interesting niche for yourself, the anti-socialism candidate. And I said earlier in the show, I don't think socialism is a winning general election message at all. But I'm not a progressive Democrat. Do you think you can survive this primary by, you know, sort of casting your... Uh, your target, your focus on, on socialism. Yeah, I think that I actually, if you look at what we've done in Colorado, right, we've got to near universal health care. Uh, we, we beat the NRA with some tough new gun laws. And we're the number one economy in the country for the last three years. We did all this without a massive, massive expansion of government. We did it by bringing right. businesses and nonprofits together. We brought, you know, uh, Democrats and Republicans together. And I think that's the message as, as a small yeah. business person, uh, an entrepreneur. We took that kind of scrappy spirit into really achieving progressive goals, but without having to have big government. So for people who aren't familiar, um, just to be real clear, is your aversion to socialism <clears throat> about electability or is it really an economic <clears throat> aversion? Well, I think both. I mean, I think in terms of electability, Republicans will call us socialists. And that is, if we don't fight back and clearly say we are not socialists, that's going to make an election in 2020 much yeah. harder. And I also would argue that socialism doesn't work. It's not the successful way of solving the, the real challenges we face. If we're going to address not just universal health care and achieving that, making sure that health care is a right and not a privilege, but actually controlling the inflation of health care, we're going to need to bring businesses and nonprofits together. The same thing I was talking about before, Republicans and Democrats, it's got to be joining together. Same thing with climate change. You go down any of the big challenges, we need to, to be working together. 
Uh, listen, you're preaching to the choir with me. I think uh, ex massive expansions of government are both um, unelectable and, and, and really problematic. So I, I like to hear this. Um, I want to quickly turn to another hot topic. You said this week you'd immediately give 11 million illegal immigrants a 10-year visa so that they can live and work out of the shadows. I agree. That's a huge priority. But how would that encourage anyone to immigrate here legally if you're giving out visas and Bernie Sanders is giving out health insurance? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a that's a double, uh, two different uh, uh, issues, really. But I can see how they could come into, into violent conflict. The, you know, making sure that the people that are here illegally get a 10-year visa and take yeah. down that anxiety. This is the, the, a key point in history because we've got something like 7.5 million unfilled skilled jobs and yeah. only about 6.3, 6.4 million people looking. So we don't have enough workers, even with those undocumented workers here in the country. And, and you know, the vast majority, 90-some percent, are working. So we can't afford to lose those workers. Yeah. So why not give them a 10-year visa, let them go to work, and if they commit violent crimes, we deport them. But this is a, you know, a, a political chicanery for President Trump to say, well, I'm going to deport all these people. Mm. It would wreak havoc in our entire economic system. Well, maybe he knows that. I'm sure you're aware there was a sort of last-minute reprieve on some of those ICE raids. We'll see what happens in Congress over the next few days. Meanwhile, Governor John Hickenlooper, thanks so much for being here tonight. I appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Up next, the president calls off a strike on Iran after he ordered it. He calls that common sense. I call it confusing. In the red file tonight, tempering tensions in Iran after the president pulled airstrikes minutes before they were scheduled to go. Here's what he said today. Everybody was saying I'm a warmonger. And now they say I'm a dove. And uh, I think I'm neither. You want to know the truth. I'm a man with common sense. And that's what we need in this country is common sense. But I didn't like the idea of them knowingly shooting down an unmanned drone, and then we kill 150 people. I didn't like that. There's been mixed reactions to Trump's mixed messages on Iran from, well, everyone. Some are calling him weak. Some are praising his restraint. So what's next? Here to discuss is former State Department spokesman under the Obama administration, Admiral John Kirby. Um, Admiral, you remember, as well as anyone, the reaction to Obama's well, abandonment of red lines in Syria. Some are comparing Trump's decision to call off the strikes to Obama. Is that fair? I think to the degree that it talks about the, the further erosion of American credibility on the world stage, particularly with potential adversaries, yeah, I think that's an apt comparison, and I understand that. There are some key differences, and I want to credit Mark Lander in the New York Times, who wrote a terrific piece about this today. Number one, uh, Obama actually made a very public red line and then walked back from it. Trump didn't mm -hmm. actually lay down a red line that the Iranians crossed. Pompeo said a red line would be if they killed American troops. Well, they didn't. They walked right up right. to that line shooting down an unmanned drone, and that was very deliberate. That's part of this yeah. calibrated escalation that they're capable of. They're poking uh, Trump without actually crossing it. Number two, uh, Obama said uh, he wanted to postpone the strike so that he could seek legislative uh, uh, approval for further actions there and in the future. Uh, and, and it was all about 
getting Congress on board. Right. I don't. I don't see any indication that, that Trump cares one way or the other about uh, whether he needed legislative support for what he was trying to do. And then, mm -hmm. lastly, look, this is a crisis of Trump's own making. Obama was re was reacting to as the world was reacting to because the Brits wanted to react too to serious violation of international law, gassing their own people. Yeah. This is a crisis of Trump's own making. He is responsible for the escalation of the tensions that we are we are mm -hmm. seeing right now. Now, o Obama was able to secure diplomatic success as a result of the walking back from the red line because the Russians came in and we got all the declared chemical stockpiles out of Syria, or at least most of them. Yeah. It, we, it, it, it remains to be seen whether uh, this recent walk back is going to be uh, result in any kind of diplomatic success for Trump at all. Uh, thank you. That was really interesting points, and uh, you were uniquely positioned to make them. I appreciate it. Um, so Trump tweeted today about, quote, major additional sanctions on Iran on Monday. Is that the next logical step from your point of view? I think it's the next step that this administration intends to pursue. And, and Pompeo just released a statement within the hour, S.E., basically saying economic pressure is going to continue. What worries me, S.E., is this maximum pressure campaign that they keep talking about is just not working. There's no indication that additional sanctions are going to bring Iran to its knees, at least from a diplomatic military security perspective. Yes, the economy is mm. in trouble, but yeah. they will probably push through this. I mean, in, as a matter of fact, the maximum pressure campaign has only exacerbated, as we just talked about, Iran's behavior. And so what I worry mm -hmm. about is is not just the next step, but the next 10 or 15 steps. Where's mm -hmm. the long-term strategy here? Hmm. Well, so we have reports that Trump was influenced in this last event uh, by Fox News host Tucker Carlson's private advice to not attack, and also that the president's actively ignoring National Security Advisor John Bolton, whom, by the way, Carlson called a bureaucratic tapeworm. And Trump today called him, quote, definitely a hawk. Um, it would seem untenable to try to craft a coherent foreign policy while the president is letting television hosts usurp his own advisors publicly. Yeah, look, uh, it's not uncommon for presidents to have kitchen cabinets. This one has a cable cabinet, uh, and, he, <laughs> and he listens to them. And look, I mean, uh, on one hand, I totally agree with you that it is, it is a very difficult thing for external advisors to be you know, getting in the way of those who are actually accountable for the advice that they're giving. In this right. case, if it is true that Tucker walked him off of that, then I applaud Tucker because I think it would have been a disastrous mistake to, to, yeah. to uh, conduct that strike. What worries me, though, more and more broadly is the utter dysfunction inside the policymaking process of this administration. There is no cohesive Iranian foreign policy or, or even strategy. But, you know, we got Pompeo and Bolton talking about regime change. You got Trump, on the other hand, talking about getting them back to a, a new nuclear deal. And there's no str tr strategic uh, coherence between the two. They say they don't want war, but SC, everything that they're doing is walking up closer to war. It seems right. like aside from sanctions, all they're looking at are military options. So I'm worried more about the dysfunction inside the lifeline not outside. Admiral John Kirby, thanks so much as always. I appreciate it. You bet. Okay, up next, I get to geek out with a brilliant MIT scientist about going back to the moon and UFOs and Matt Damon. What? Sit tight. Next month will mark the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing, Apollo 11, but there have been celebrations all year. Apollo Paloozas and Lunar Jubilees. CNN is airing an incredible doc called Apollo 11 tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern. You will want to see it. Earlier this week, I had the honor of moderating a panel of top women space scientists at the Kennedy Library 
to commemorate this event. One of those incredible women was Dr. Maria Zuber. She was the first woman to lead a NASA spacecraft mission, the first woman to lead a science department at MIT, where she currently serves as vice president for research. She's been involved in more than half a dozen NASA planetary missions. She's even got an asteroid named after her, asteroid 6635 Zuber. In short, she's a rock star, and she joins me now. Dr. Zuber, I'm thrilled to have you on the program. Yes, see, great. Thank you for having me. Really excited sure. to be here. Okay, so first, let's talk about this incredible moment in history, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. What did that moment mean to you as a young girl? So, um, so I was, uh, I was very young when that happened, and I got to stay up late uh, to watch the, the first steps on the moon. And, um, and I was already hooked on space science. I started at a very, very young age. Uh, but it, it changed my life. And, um, and it, just, uh, it just made me realize um, what was possible when you dream big. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's some debate now, as there was after 11, uh, about whether we need to go back to the moon. What do you think? Is that, is that imperative, or should we sort of look, look elsewhere? So, um, so there's, uh, there's a great deal to be learned about the moon in its own right. I mean, our studies using the moon rocks, which are continuing today, have really revolutionized our understanding not only of the moon, but of the early history of Earth at the time when life first emerged, and also taught us a great deal about the solar system, how the solar system formed. And there's a great deal more to be learned about that. But the moon is also important as a way station. I think we all agree mm -hmm. that uh, uh, Mars ought to be our next destination. And um, but there are so many things that have to be tested to uh, to have a successful mission. And um, and being three days away at the moon um, is uh, there's uh, a lot to be said for that because once you start on the path of going to Mars, you're you're gone for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, well, senators are now getting classified briefings on UFOs, which, you know, is really exciting, I think. Do you think that we'll know whether there's life out there in our lifetimes? Uh, yeah, actually, I've, I've asked to be briefed on those, uh, but I, that hasn't come to pass yet. But uh, okay. uh, there are, you know, there are so many discoveries about of planets around other stars and including, you know, planets in our what I'll call our own solar system neighborhood. But uh, but planets far beyond that, and there are so many galaxies. And now we're seeing that most stars uh, in our neighborhood have planets, so it's likely that most stars in other places have planets as well. And just given the probabilities, um, the uh, really um, the only difference between, say, a rock and a life form is that a life form uh, can feed itself and reproduce. And mm -hmm. so it it seems kind of unlikely that the conditions that would allow that to happen only happened on this single planet. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm a believer that there is life in other places, and we certainly ought to be looking for it. Well, I asked you this earlier, your favorite space movie. You said it was The Martian because it was one of the most realistic, except for uh, two things. What were those? Uh, the two things, uh, well, the two major things in The Martian that were shortcoming uh, the first was they didn't treat uh, the matter of radiation, and one needs to shield for radiation, 
and uh, and they they didn't talk about that at all. It was just an assumption that it was done, but uh, but it's certainly yeah. a a major factor, but one that can be dealt with. And and uh, and the other one is that the um, uh, the atmospheric pressure at the surface of Mars is six millibars, so it's the equivalent of a hundred thousand feet on Earth's or the altitude that spy planes fly. And so it's very windy on Mars, but when the wind blows, um, it's not going to blow over a rocket. And uh, so, uh, you know, in fact, when I uh, talked to Matt Damon after uh, MIT graduation, he said to me, but Maria, we needed something to strand me there. <laughs> that's right. I mean, yeah, that's artistic license, right, for you, uh, Dr. Maria Zuber. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. Right. Thank you, Essie. And don't forget to watch the CNN film Apollo 11. That's tomorrow night at 9 Eastern. I'll be right back. The New York Times conducted interviews with all the Democratic candidates except Joe Biden. He passed for some not very smart reason. And one of the more revealing questions they asked was, what is your favorite comfort food? Mine's mozzarella sticks. I'm sure you have a good one, too. It's a pretty straightforward question, at least you'd think. But alas, not for some. There was Cory Booker, a noted vegan, who immediately made me sad by saying his favorite comfort food is veggies. Tulsi Gabbard similarly said vegan cupcakes, so she can't be president. Andrew Yang said kind bars. Okay, health food by definition offers zero comfort. In fact, I want to comfort kind bars for being so hard to eat. A few seemed confused as to what the food part of comfort food means. John Hickenlooper said M&Ms and mints. That's not food. If you can keep it in your glove compartment, it's not food. Three of the candidates actually named beverages. Eric Swalwell said comfort coffee. That's not a thing, sir. Marianne Williamson said, quote, I have no comfort food. There's a Lifetime movie there. An odd one from Amy Klobuchar who said baked potato. Somehow it's hard for me to imagine the senator sitting on the couch in sweatpants watching Broad City reruns and cutting into a baked potato, but that could be her thing. Tim Ryan said he likes ice cream, which is like saying you like music. Which flavor, sir? The difference between Congressman Tim Ryan and President Tim Ryan is one incorrect answer, like mint chocolate chip. Okay, to the better answers, Seth Moulton and Steve Bullock both said burgers. There's grease in those. That works. Elizabeth Warren likes chips and guac. Who doesn't? And the winners. Well, it was a tie. Kamala Harris confessed she likes French fries. Get it, girl. And John Delaney likes two grilled chicken sandwiches from McDonald's because he knows the key to any good comfort food is volume. Okay, that's it for me. Ana Cabrera will have the latest headlines next on CNN Newsroom. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.